from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Hello Earthlings and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I am Eric S. Piotrowski, a writer and educator in Wisconsin, USA. I'm known as Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, aka Scartoll in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Today is Sunday, the 3rd of May, 2020. On this show, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope is, a brand new kid to show biz. With knowledge I persevere, but if I now do me a favor, let me in here, then we can find a rhyme to fill in space and drop the what the hell is going on? It's been like a hundred million years since I recorded one of these. And in that time, I think I recorded after Trump got elected, but uh, I can't remember when the last interview. I did an interview with Shay Crowell probably last summer, and that was the last thing I released under this. Anyway, um, I've since gotten a new microphone. Maybe you can tell that my voice is more clear. And... Uh, yeah, it's, there's a global pandemic and we're all locked in our houses, unless you're a freedom-loving Oklahoman. I saw a news story today about this town in Oklahoma where restaurants were all ordered to, do, you, you, you had to wear a face mask if you want to go in a restaurant, but people threatened to shoot the people in the restaurant if they weren't allowed in without a face mask. So the town said, okay, you don't have to wear a face mask anymore. So that's the state of America in the rural parts of America. America, yeah. So why am I doing a syncast today? It's been a crazy weekend. I got to be honest with you. I mean, Look, first of all, I have to make clear that my life is really, really good right now. I, I, I don't, I can't leave the house. I have to stay home and play video games. Aw, oh, dang it. Shucks. Now, I do miss teaching because I love interacting with my students. And we're doing stuff over Google Classroom and trying to have Zoom chats. But very few students come to the Zoom chat. So I'm not being able to interact with them the way I'd like to. And the technology doesn't work as well as it should. And there's all sorts of things. Speaking of technology, this Macintosh that I'm recording on is like 10 years old, so it's very slow and frustrating, but whatever. You didn't come here to hear that. The point is that this weekend's been crazy, and I got a rejection from this story I wrote called The Juncture Alpha. It's a really good story. I'm really eager to get it out into the world, but I submitted it to five different science fiction publications, and none of them want it, and the rest of them want things that are shorter, so I'll probably end up having to publish it myself, which whatever it's not a big deal but it's really frustrating that there's this world of legit publishing behind this gate and it's an electric gate and i can't get near it and the world of legit publishing hates me and it's very frustrating to be constantly rejected and that's my ego talking the writing is good i'll probably keep doing it it's just a feeling of despair when you feel like you put so much work into stuff and then you know, look, I'm very fortunate to have people close to me, my friends and loved ones and family members giving me support and encouragement. And I'm grateful for that because some people don't even have that. So I know that I'm lucky in that regard. But I would also like to have the recognition of the world that doesn't know me, the world of legit publishing, the world of, you know, literature in general, 
recognize that, yeah, these stories are decent. Because I always feel like Millhouse on The Simpsons. I have nothing to offer you but my love. I specifically said no geeks. But my mom says I'm cool. <laughs> I mean, that's what everybody who does, you know, various forms of work will say. Is that, oh, my friends like these jokes. My friends think this song is awesome. And, and meanwhile, the jokes are stupid and the song sucks. So, again, like, I believe my work is good and uh, whatever. I just don't want to be delusional about the quality of it. And in a capitalist society, getting paid for your work is basically how the world tells you your work is decent. And if I don't get paid for it, then what does that mean? Now, Again, I know there's good work that doesn't get rewarded financially, but it's so easy to slip into this mindset of like, I'm an unappreciated genius and the world just isn't ready for what I'm putting down and you can't handle what I'm doing, man. My art's too radical and all that bullshit. So that was frustrating. But meanwhile, uh, I woke up today and I just, I don't know. This is the thing. I have these moments of crash and rise and when i get rejected there's a crash and then i wallow in it sometimes for you know 12 hours as in this case sometimes for 48 hours or whatever and then there's usually a rise and i come out of it feeling better and a lot of that is because i have support of an amazing wife and good friends especially online and stuff so um yeah thank you to everybody on twitter who's been showing love and shouting me out jason gallagher and gh rocker and um, JP Snake and uh, uh, I can't remember who else but thank you very much to everybody who's been so kind to me the point is for whatever reason I made some flapjacks this morning I washed the dishes and then I was thinking you know what I should do a sync cast it's been a long time I have some energy I have some things to say and as always can eat more which is a reference to Futurama when Fry uh, dates the robot Lucy Liu uh, robot based on Lucy Liu who's programmed to like everything he says and then when I feel so stuffed I can't eat anymore, I just use the restroom. And then I can eat more. You should write a book, Fry. People need to know about the can eat more. Well, joke's on you, Robot Lucy Lou. I wrote five books and there's more coming. So, there it is. Uh, yeah, what the hell? What's going on? It's all sorts of stuff. I guess we should talk about some current events. There's no good on Salvador. Have you heard of So there's a bunch of stuff going on, obviously. The big one is the coronavirus. I don't have anything to say that's blindly interesting, but I will say that uh, there's a really good article in the um, Atlantic about the coronavirus in a broad scale sense. Like it took a macrocosmic view about like why it's so hard to understand the science and why uh, the policy is so disjointed and all that stuff. And it's a really good piece. So I'll link it in the show notes. And, and I think that... One of the things, you know, I wrote a piece called Chaotic Reflections, and I can link that if people are interested, if you haven't seen it already. And uh, it, there's, we're, we're in an unprecedented moment of human history, of course. And I think one of the most important things each of us can do is to focus on our instincts and to do what is most important at the core. And I say it like that because I think that a lot of people are clinging to their ideologies right now. So the people who are walking into the Michigan State House with AR-15s, the people who protested here in Wisconsin at the Capitol building with assault rifles, 
they're clinging to their ideology. They've become convinced that government's the problem and that if they're angry, if they feel threatened, then the way to deal with that is to go against the government because that's what they've had drilled into their head for 20 years is the government's the problem. Government's the problem. Ronald Reagan said that back in the 1980s. So it's 40 years by now of having that drilled into your head, right? And Fox News beats that drum constantly. But I don't want to just, I'm not, I don't have any delusions that anybody listening to this is a Trump supporter or somebody who has any sympathy for the people who are marching on state capitals with assault rifles. I want to speak to people that are probably listening who probably are like me and, you know, more empathetic. And the point is that going to those instincts, going to your core beliefs of love and compassion and empathy, that's what we need to do in a crisis, I tell my students all the time that the most important thing you can do when things get hectic is to stay calm and help other people stay calm. And that's what I tried to do when I almost had my thumb bitten off in a dogfight. And that's what I've tried to do when, you know, stuff goes down at school or, you know, if I ever uh, get involved in a, I don't think I've been in a car accident lately, but, you know, sometimes there's moments where, as Boots from the Coup says, I feel my epidermis at its firmest just before a skirmish. And in those moments when your heart starts racing, you know, what are you going to, what are you going to default to, right? That's when your instincts kick in. It's fight or flight, right? And the question is, as Hoffa says in the movie Slam, we come in fighting, we're going to go out fighting, but how we fight is the fight. And I really think that's true. So the question is like, how do you train yourself to think in moments of crisis? And I think that the guys with AR-15s have trained themselves deliberately over years and years and years to think I need to be ready with my gun to go out and hand, you know confront the authority in the state house because they're going to try to come get me like they did in Ruby Ridge and Branch Davidian cult, whatever. Um, you know, Mark Twain said that to somebody with a hammer, everything in the world looks like a nail. And, and that's the way it works. That's the way our minds work. The more you train yourself to think a certain way, that becomes your reality. So the question then becomes for each of us, how are you training your mind? What is your default mode? What are your instincts? What are your core values that you're going to turn to in moments of crisis? Because I find that if you turn to things like love and having fun and supporting the people around you and solidarity, these things make the lives of the people around you better and they can make your life better too. So to anybody who's feeling down or despondent or frustrated right now, you know, you have every right to feel that way. The question is, how do you respond to that and, and how are you taking care of yourself? And, and the reason I mention, you know, the way this shows up in my life in teaching, a lot of times I deal with students who are cranky or, you know, frustrated by things in their life. And most of the time, the best I can do is offer them the tool of writing. I can help them get better at, you know, using the English language so that they can do well on tests and get good grades and get ACT scores and get into college and get a good job, blah, blah, blah. But in the here and now, I want to help them with a little bit of mindfulness and make my classroom into a refuge. Okay, so we don't really have that right now because of the coronavirus. But what I am doing is I, all the time, even before this, you know, the virus hit, I play a lot of video games, especially a game called Rocket League. And some of you know this game. For those who don't, it's, you know, soccer, football, as the rest of the world calls it, uh, but with cars that have huge jet engines on the back of them. So you're flying around in the air, hitting this big inflatable ball into goals. It's ridiculous, but it's a lot of fun. And it's really addictive. 
and I run into all these sour, angry children. The game is filled with toxic idiots. And they're not all actually children. A lot of them are over the age of 18, but they act like children, right? And so they they say things like, you know, there's these quick chat commands. You can quickly type, you know, send messages in the chat. And one of them is what a save. So if you have a really good save, you protect the goal, your teammate might say, hey, what a save. Like, congratulations, that was a really good save. But it's mostly used ironically by the other team when they score to make fun of you for missing. So people just spam that in the chat constantly. And the the chat also gets filled with like racist things and sexist things and hatred of gay people. And it's really a horrible environment. And what I always say in the chat is let's forgive the sour, angry children so that we never become them. Because the, the number one thing that pathetic, angry people will do is t- try to turn you into one of them. And... The more you cling to your anger toward those people, the more likely it is that you're going to become an angry, bitter person. And I don't think any of us really want to be that. And so part of why I'm doing this podcast is because I try to remind myself constantly about what I want to be, how I want to show up in the world, what I want to focus on. And um, that doesn't have anything to do with, you know, winning a video game or being, well, I do want to be the most respected author in the world. Let's not lie. George Orwell said that the number one reason why he wrote was ego. He said, quote, it is humbug to pretend that is not a motive and a strong one, end quote. So, but, but you know, it, it's much more important to me that I make a difference in the world and that I take care of the people around me and that I handle my business. So, you know, I'm going to teach and I'm going to, you know, be around for my responsibilities. And then in the spare time with my spare money, in my spare, with my spare energy, if I can get some stuff out there in the world that I've written and people enjoy it, cool. And I think the most important thing for me in a moment like this, when I'm facing the rejection and the pain and the misery is to ask myself, okay, in the sum total of life, am I satisfied with what I've got? And the answer is overwhelmingly yes. And in those moments of ego, when I get rejected from a publisher or I find that, you know, there's nothing I can do with this book except put it out myself, whatever. I mean, I should be grateful that I even have the resources to put it out myself because a lot of people don't have that. They don't have time or they don't have energy or they don't have the money. So there's a lot I have to be grateful for. And I don't want to be delusional and thinking, you know, Ooh, I've got these two things and I should, I've got everything I need. But I do have everything I need. I just don't have everything I want. And of course, that distinction between needs and wants uh, is a crucial one for us to constantly keep in mind. As the rapper BrainTac said, what you want and what you need are two different extremes. I hit you somewhere in the middle like the heart and spleen. Anyway, this is supposed to be about current events. Uh, (laughs) The only current event is the coronavirus. And uh, yeah, like I said, the article from The Atlantic is really good. So read that, why don't you? However... Specifically, let's talk a little bit about economics. I really do think that a lot of the protests of the AR-15 crowd has to do with money. Uh, People are worried about their small businesses. People are worried about, you know, the economy. But then the question becomes, how do you measure the economy, right? 
And we usually measure the economy through the stock market, through unemployment rates and things like that. But those don't tell the whole story. So unemployment rates are sky high. We've never seen unemployment rates like this since the Great Depression. That makes sense. Everybody's not working right now. If you can't work from home, then you're not, you don't have a job. And that's horrifying. The, the problem is that it's horrifying because we have a society that has not guaranteed a backup plan for that sort of crisis, right? Now, there are other countries that are doing better jobs of this. And in the United States, we've, you know, I, 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 I've never dealt with unemployment. I've never had that problem. And I'm very fortunate to never have been in that spot. But I see, you know, Canada promising $2,000 a month to anybody affected by COVID-19. You know, I saw an article in Germany where uh, people are getting like 80% of their salaries, even if they're not working. And the article said, and I don't know if I'll be able to find it, but, you know, where you work is very important to how you're dealing with this coronavirus. Uh, And it contrasted someone in like Portland, Oregon with someone in Germany. And it's not quite that simple. And the article makes it clear that it's not that simple, but they point, basically the point of the article is that Germany has a stronger safety net. And I think in the United States, we've done a really bad job helping people who need help because there, there are certain parts of our society that have demonized those who are poor and said, it's your fault. This is the land of opportunity. If you can't make it, there's something wrong with you. Uh, I had a student one time who said, you don't need a union. You don't need solidarity. You need to make yourself indispensable to the organization that you work in. And that's just such a simplistic, individualistic, privileged way of thinking about the world. And um, yeah, a true solidarity mindset says that, that it understands that these organizations, whether they're corporations or you know even governments or nonprofits or whatever, they are maximizing their economic concepts. And what that means is that as soon as they think they can make some money by getting rid of you, they get rid of you. It's not personal. It's not based on whether you're quote unquote indispensable because the point is that nobody's indispensable to one of these organizations. They are not rational organizations and they're certainly not based on any kind of long-term self-interest the way that a good organization is. So the point is that the economic situation in the United States, I think, is particularly perilous and because people aren't training themselves to think about how much money the 1% has and how we should all be sharing it if we really are all in this together, as we keep getting told. Um, Instead, people are trained to think government's the problem, you should be attacking government. If we all demanded rent freezes and, you know, cash payment, a a universal basic income to everybody right now, then we would have a lot less of this anxiety and tension and anger in the world, in the United States at least. Um, and there, you know, poor countries are certainly suffering a lot more than rich countries are, but there's poor areas in the United States that are suffering plenty. So the, the economics question really can't be separated from the political question. And, and unfortunately, of course, the, the illiterate sociopath that's in power in Washington doesn't care about any of his followers. And I think the tragedy is that his followers, most of them are not going to connect the dots in terms of thinking about the fact that this man has proven that he doesn't care about them because they have people showing them instead of connecting the dots A to B, they have Fox News and Breitbart and a hundred other sources that are echoing around their echo chamber 
telling them that the, the connection is not A to B. The connection is A to Q to Z to J to W to, you know, F. And, and the anger should be directed at Joe Biden and the anger should be directed at, you know, everybody except Donald Trump and the people around him. Uh, despite the fact that he said we should in, look at injecting disinfectant into the lungs. And as a result, people around the country started calling, you know, doctors saying, can I inject disinfectant into me? Now, look, people who ask that question, okay, it's very easy to say, well, they're stupid. And, you know, okay, they are. But that's a very glib way to think about the problem. Because the point is that the president has an incredible reach and people listen to him and people take him seriously. So the words he says, even though he said later he was being sarcastic, it doesn't matter. Even if he was, and he wasn't, but even if he were, and it should be were because the conditional always takes were instead of was. That's why on The Simpsons, when Marge says, The National Grammar Rodeo? I wish I were going. Oh, wait, wait. I mean, I wish I was going. Is that right, Bart? Mm. It's supposed to be were. You were right the first time, Marge. Don't doubt yourself. The point is that we should be focused on the people who have the money and demanding more of it for ourselves. Uh, I don't really have anything to say about education or killer robots. Do I have something to say about hip-hop? Maybe. I do have something to say about hip-hop. Uh, the new R.A. The Rugged Man album is not... I mean, it's, it's good, but it's mixed. It's called All My Heroes Are Dead, and... It's got a cover that shows him with a big gun and like all these dead people around him. He's known for his R.A. the Rugged Man had a really great verse on a Jedi mind trick song called Uncommon Valor, where he tells the story of his father's actual experiences in Vietnam. It's a really good verse. Uh, his The rest of his work is much less even. It's, it's not as amazing as that. Um, Public Enemy has a new album out, which is actually very good. Uh, I'm trying to look at what the name of that album is right here. I have it on this playlist. And, uh, yeah, it's called Loud is Not Enough, and it's under the name Enemy Radio, because there was this schism with Chuck and Flav, and if you want to know more about that, you should watch the very good interview that Chuck D. did with um, Talib Kweli, uh, which is a really good uh, interview. Talib Kweli has a podcast called People's Party, which is excellent, and uh, he interviewed Everlast recently from House of Pain and a bunch of other projects. Uh, Anyway, so, but here's the thing. This week, I want to introduce you to Pumpkin, who is a, uh, she's a rapper from France, and I don't know where in France, uh, but she's really good, and I'll play you a bit from her song, Make Boom Bap Great Again, from the album Astronauts.
l'industrie de la musique Vindus, badass, même sans phallus Big up à mon hypothalamus Audis ménor et dans mon utérus Je m'amuse comme en Erasmus Sur mon cumulus, depuis MySpace Avec Vince, on suit le même cursus Mental aux musiques, usine à opus C'est mental et physique, on cuisine à l'astuce Certains ont besoin d'espèce Pour viser la thune, nous on a besoin d'espace Pour viser la lune So it's just really a good album. I encourage you to check it out. The album is called Astronauts. It's on Spotify and elsewhere. I just, one of the things, I've really been listening to a lot of hip hop from around the world. And one of the things I like about the hip hop, I hear from France and the UK and Australia. There's a rapper from Australia named Mantra who has a song called Right Here, Right Now or um, something like that. Anyway, uh, I feel like they are embracing that boom bap sound. And a lot of the hip hop that we hear in the United States right now is in the form of what's called trap music, trap beats, which are not the same kind of boom bap that I grew up with. And I just don't, I don't like the sound of trap music. It's just not. Now, here's the weird thing. There's an electronic style of music called trap, which I love. And it's it's kind of it's, it's it's a lot of break beats. It's it's really weird that there's two different kinds of music called trap that are so different. So anyway, um, yeah. So but Pumpkin's really cool. And again, it's she's embracing that boom bap sound. And I really wish we had more of that in the U.S. But you know what? There's probably a lot of trap rap music in France as well. It's just that for whatever reason, I found this pumpkin person. I don't remember how I found her, but, uh, you know, there's not a lot of women rappers getting love in the U S either. Uh, although Rhapsody is amazing and her new album Eve is just fantastic. She samples Phil Collins in the air tonight. Like how sick is that? And she's a great rapper. So anyway, um, yeah, that's Pumpkin. And now you know something about Pumpkin. All right. One last thing I want to talk about is this movie that we watched recently. And I, it's not really quote of the week, but I'll be reading some quotes when I talk about this. So I guess I'll use this as the quote of the Friends, week. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Stop repenting because the end of this near. But don't panic. You can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention. You got to listen to hear. Wait out for me. So Michael Moore is somebody that I have loved for a long time. His, he's a documentary filmmaker. He made Roger and Me, which was about his hometown of Flint, Michigan, and how it was devastated when the General Motors plant was shut down uh, in the 1980s. And they moved to Mexico because labor is cheaper, less environmental restrictions, you know, all the reasons why we see offshoring and downsizing. Uh, he followed that with a book called Downsize This, uh, he, he went on tour for that book and he made a movie of that tour called the big one, which is, you know, kind of fun and lighthearted. It just, it was a, it was a road tour movie and it was a lot, but it was, you know, he dealt with politics along the way. He made a movie called Bowling for Columbine, which is about gun violence in the United States. He made a movie about the U.S. healthcare system called Sicko. He made a movie about our economic system called Capitalism, a Love Affair. He made a movie about the way that people in other countries do things differently, like getting more vacation and, uh, you know, how they how they deal with schools and school lunch in France and how they teach students in Finland. And he made the point. It's called Where Do We Invade Next? And his point was that a lot of the things that they do in these other countries kind of started in the United States. It's just that we've kind of turned our back on these trends and these patterns and these habits and these practices. So Michael Moore has a long history of really good films. 
Unfortunately, he executive produced and helped to make a new documentary film called Planet of the Humans. And as soon as he mentioned it, I was like, ooh, I really want to see that. And then he said it was being released on YouTube for free. And I was like, oh, sweet. Um, It's about the environmental crisis. Now, if you're like me, as soon as you hear there's this documentary film about the environment, part of you says, oh, God, not again. Like, how many of these can we have, right? Because all we ever get are, you know, danger sign after danger sign. It's like the robot from Lost in Space. Danger, Will Robinson. And you can only hear that so many times. Oh, the polar bears are dying. The ice caps are melting. We know already how bad everything is. Some of us do. And the idea that we need another movie, you know, to... Uh, ring the alarm bells about the climate catastrophe is just ridiculous but nevertheless i was like you know what i'll bet michael moore is going to bring a really good perspective to this and i want to see what they have to say so we watched it and it's not a good movie and it's really a shame that it's not a good movie because they could have made a good movie so he's working with someone named jeff gibbs who i guess he's worked with a lot And there's several core problems. Let's start with the aesthetics. Okay, whatever else you might think of Michael Moore's movies, they're funny. He's a funny guy. He's long understood that you have to inject a lot of humor into a movie about the destruction of industrial Michigan or shootings in the United States or people dying from easily treatable diseases in the U.S. healthcare system. These are horrible topics to talk about. And, but he has managed to make funny movies about all of them. And this movie is not funny. The, the guy, Jeff Gibbs, is, he's, he's the one narrating it. And he talks like this throughout the movie. There is no emotion in his voice. He is completely dispassionate. He asks a lot of rhetorical questions. And it makes you wonder, what's the value of a rhetorical question if it's posed in a meaningless way and has no real insight to offer? Uh, Josh Fox was interviewed uh, Josh Fox made another great movie called Gasland and he's come out as like the chief opponent of this new movie so there's Planet of the Humans over here and then there, and there's Jeff Gibbs and Michael Moore over here and then there's Josh Fox and other people and I'll get to them in a second on the other side Josh Fox has demanded that uh, Michael Moore and the crew retract the film in the same way that a journalistic outlet would retract a story that was misleading or misinformed or whatever um there's a third party kind of trying to find the balance there. Uh, there's a website called Films for Action, which I guess hosts, you know, YouTube videos and movies that have, you know, activist elements in them. And they posted a thing on their uh, website that said, "We here, wait, I have the quote. I can quote you from what they say because I wrote a big long thread where I put all the receipts, as the kids call them. Um, so Films for Action, uh, they said... Uh, where is it? Oh my God. Anyway, uh, yeah, here we go. Uh, we are disheartened and dismayed to report that this film is full of misinformation and they give nine citations to websites that prove the misinformation that's in this film. So that's, 
that's not aesthetic. That's content. We'll get to content in a second. Um, but the point is that, you know, Josh Fox made a really good film and uh, Gasland is about fracking and it's a great movie. If you haven't seen Gasland, go see it. It's, it's wonderful. And it really does a good job of talking about the problem of hydraulic fracturing, fracking, in a way that's entertaining. And it's not as though we should have to be entertained all the time. You know, um, uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death is a book by Neil Postman, which is really good. And, you know, it's all about the way television, <laughs> he hadn't even seen the internet, <laughs> Uh, can distract us and focus us only on entertainment all the time. I'm not calling for entertainment all the time, of course. But if you're going to make a, this movie's an hour and 40 minutes or something, and there's no entertainment in it, that's a problem. And as Josh Fox points out, this is more content, but whatever. It's it's one white guy after another talking about the problem, and they're they're so boring. These people are really boring. Um, so their choice of sources is a problem. The lack of entertainment is a problem. Um, there's really not a lot of variety of location. I mean, there sort of is, but not really. Uh, it's 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 slow. The pacing of this film is really slow. There's this long extended footage at the start of the Earth from space, and there's this long extended footage at the end of this orangutan whose habitat is being destroyed, and he's kind of just gazing at the sky. And those things feel like they're supposed to be profound, but they're really not. But the biggest problem... So those are the aesthetic problems in the movie. The big, the content problems are legendary, and, and here's some of them. So this is basically what I said in my thread. Number one, the biggest problem with this movie in terms of content is that it's not actually advocating anything. What it's doing is it's saying, here's what's wrong with the environmental movement. In an interview, Michael Moore said later on uh he's not in the film but he said in an interview with the hill that the the, the environmental movement is failing that we're if we're, we're losing this fight and and the question is why and so what the movie's supposedly trying to do is point out the mistakes that the environmental movement has made um i don't believe that it succeeds in doing that it asks some important questions which i can talk about in a second but 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 it fails to advocate anything i kept waiting to reach a point where it was like here's what we need to do or here are some examples of people who are doing the things that ought to happen as some documentary films do and as michael moore's films have done he's always emphasized the purpose of action you know in roger and me he kept talking about this flint sit-down strike which won rights for workers back in the day. And, you know, he, he showed labor leaders working with management and talking about how strikes don't do anything anymore and, and yet whatever, whatever. So he's, you know, he knows the value of talking about action. But in this movie, there's no action. The only time they ever show people protesting is to ambush people leading those protests or to ask questions in a way that's supposed to be, you know, ooh, we gotcha, you don't have an answer for this. But it's really just obnoxious and annoying. And again, Michael Moore made the blueprint for doing this kind of filmmaking where he was trying. I mean, Roger and me is all about him trying to get a meeting with the CEO of General Motors, Roger Smith. That's what made that movie so great. And he tried to do the same thing in the big one. And he's made a name for himself. His whole career is built on the idea of like trying to ask questions to people in power. But in this film, they're trying to do it for people like Bill McKibben, who is this an activist who's devoted decades of his life to trying to get us aware. He's the one who created 350.org. 
and he's trying to get us to be aware of the scope of the environmental problem. And at one point, he supported the burning of wood chips as a more environmentally appropriate response to burning fossil fuels. And now he says, in 2016, he said, eh, that's not a mis- that's not a good idea. So he evolved his position, but they were acting like, oh, he's supporting this thing that's really not environmentally sound. So that's, the, the movie doesn't really advocate anything, which is a problem. Um, then it, it, it starts by suggesting early in the film that solar and wind power don't work very well. You know, wind turbines require concrete to erect and you have to cut down trees in order to put up the wind turbines. And solar panels require fossil fuels to make and, and all this stuff. And, and, you know, they go to this old solar array and it's like, it's not even here anymore. Well, it was made 40 years ago, but whatever. Uh, I, I've got articles that link to all sorts of, you know, scientific things. If you want to know the details about why the film is incorrect and many of its assertions. But the point is it talks about those things in these negative ways, solar and wind. And then it says later on, oh, biomass, burning trees, basically, uh, that's like 80% of so-called green tech. Solar and wind are 1.2%. Wait a minute. Are you advocating for more solar and wind or not? Like it's not, they don't know what they're advocating. The film is completely, uh, it's schizophrenic not the right word, but it, the film suffers from multi-personality disorder because it's, 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 it's saying one thing and then it goes back on that and it goes in this direction, it goes in that direction. So far as I can tell, what the movie's trying to say is that we need to actually reduce our energy use, period. Which is a good thesis. If they made a movie about that, that would be great. But they're not, they didn't make that movie. What they made was a movie that said, the environmental movement sucks and here's why. And they used a lot of bad information to try to prove that point, which is not a great point to start with. And as Josh Fox points out, they completely ignore a decade of environmental activism. They ignore the Green New Deal. They ignore Fridays for the Future and Greta Thunberg and, and all the activists who are doing amazing work, all the people who have gotten in the streets to demand that politicians pay attention and make good policy on this. And then Michael Moore has the nerve to go on the hill and say, we need politicians to step up and recognize the scope of the problem. What do you think people have been trying to do? Make up your mind, dude. Anyway, uh, so Bill McKibben, I'm going through this thread I wrote with all the links and stuff. Um, McKibben spoke out against biomass in 2016. Uh, in Michael Moore's interview with The Hill, you complain about growth and capitalism, but these topics are barely mentioned in the film. Instead, you go after Van Jones and other people like their Roger Smith. Uh, Josh Fox points out that you omit the Green New Deal. I just said that. Number six, uh, if you're trying to go after the intersection of capitalism and climate crisis, you cannot find a better ally than Naomi Klein. For those who don't know, Naomi Klein first wrote a book called um, No Logo, where she looks at the way that corporations use logos as a way to try to make themselves into human beings and then they expand into empire and all sorts of stuff. No Logo is a difficult book to summarize. But anyway, she wrote another one called The Shock Doctrine and then she wrote one called This Changes Everything, which is about the climate and she recently wrote one called On Fire. She's a really good activist with a long history of... um, you know, smart analysis and trying to help people on the front lines of making change, uh, think more clearly and understand the world as it is in a macrocosmic sense. Uh, so the fact that she spoke out against this film is a big deal and she should have been included. If you were trying to make a movie about capitalism and the environment, you go to Naomi Klein at least at some point, but they didn't. Uh, and so she wrote, uh, in response to a thing that another guy wrote, 
Um, thank you for writing this. It's truly demoralizing how much damage this film has done at a moment when many are ready for deep change. There are important critiques of an environmentalism that refuses to reckon with unlimited consumption and growth. But this film ain't it. That's a really important point, and I agree with it 100%. Um... Yeah, so the website Films for Action already mentioned that. The film just isn't entertaining, as I said. Uh, tired voices complaining via rhetorical questions are not enough. Yes, uh, so the Josh Fox piece is really great. He say, The headline in The Nation for his article says, Meet the new flack for oil and gas, Michael Moore. Now, I don't think that's fair because, you know, it's very easy to say that if you attack the environmental movement, then you are supporting the fossil fuel industry. I don't think that's fair. I, I've, I've been on record for a long time as trying to fight oversimplification. In 2012, when people went after the Coney 2012 phenomenon and the group that did it, Invisible Children, uh, I wrote a piece called Resisting Oversimplification, which I, I think is a really important concept for us to keep in mind because it's so easy for us, all of us, to oversimplify our ideological opponents, right? You can write Trump off very easily. And it's so tempting to oversimplify his followers. And we shouldn't be too generous toward them, but we have to understand that movements are made of people and people are complex. So anyway, um, yeah, I believe in conversation. Uh, I do not think that the makers of this film or hacks for oil and gas as the nation headline suggests. However, I believe it's just as wrong for the makers of the film to dismiss the criticisms as they have of Josh Fox and Naomi Klein and Bill McKibben, as it is for Breitbart to champion this film. And they did Breitbart news said that this film was like, I don't even, I didn't even read it, but Josh Fox points out that, you know, Breitbart has supported this film because it's going after the environmental movement. You know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend as chairman Mao said, and that's not always true, but that's the way it tends to work, which is why people, by the way, are so reluctant to go after Joe Biden for his sexual assault uh, history the way they have other people. And, you know, it's, it's a tough thing. We shouldn't. Joe Biden should not have been the candidate. Let's just get that on the table right here and now. Joe Biden has a long history of mediocrity and mealy mouth centrism and he's just not a good leader and he should not be the candidate for president i believe tara reed when she says that he assaulted her i think that that's a huge problem but i'm still gonna vote for joe biden and i, I should have talked about this earlier i guess but whatever i'm here now let's do this because as desperate as it seems and, and I'm not going to spend a whole long time talking about this because I agree with what Diane said, Noam Chomsky once said. I didn't read the quote myself, but I believe her. Noam Chomsky once said, spend five minutes figuring out how you're going to vote for president and then get back to work. And I think that's really true. I, I am an activist. I don't do as much activism as I used to do, but, you know, whatever. The point is that it's, it's voting for president. We spend 95% of our political mental energy in the United States focused on this question. And it really doesn't deserve that much. There are so many other things we can focus on and work on. But anyway, um, I'm going to vote for Biden because uh, <laughs> he's been accused of significantly fewer incidents of sexual harassment and assault. And his policies and the people that he's going to surround himself with will make life less miserable for a lot of people. 
And those two things, the fact that he's probably guilty of these harassment and assault claims and the fact that he's a better person for the job, despite the fact that he's not a good person for the job, that's where we are. And so that's all I have to say about that. Um, I don't even know why I talked about that. Uh, yeah, so most people hide from, so we oversimplify things and we should resist that, right? I fear no truth. I love the probably apocryphal quote from the French writer Colette. Look at a long time at that which pleases you. Look for a longer time at that which displeases you. It's such a great quote. Now, it, she probably never said it. I can't find a source for it, whatever. The, but it's a great sentiment, right? So, and we, I think we need to do that. Most of us, most people hide from unpleasant truths and seek comfort and confirmation bias. But I also know that truth takes many forms and contains many facets. It can be presented in many ways and has many implications. Those who offer truth, especially difficult truths that challenge global movements for justice and self-preservation, as this movie does, they have deep responsibilities. So I commend, you know, look, solar power is not, you know, I never, we have solar panels on our house. I think they're awesome. They power my electric car. I'm very grateful to have an electric car. I believe it's a better choice to have an electric car that's at least partially powered by the solar panels on our roof than it is to be pumping gas into a, you know, internal combustion vehicle. That is an environmentally better choice. There's no question there in my mind, nor should there be in anybody's mind, I think. The que- it's not enough. That's the point. One of the points this movie's making is that that's not enough, right? They have this montage where they show how solar panels and wind turbines and even electric cars are made. And it, you know, involves the mining of a lot of stuff out of the earth. And that's a fair criticism, right? What is in my electric car? How do these solar panels get made? And those are fair questions. And I, I, I'm grateful to this film and the makers of it for putting those questions out to us because they're things that we haven't really wrestled with. And if we can make the production of these renewable resources and these renewable energy forms, we can make the production of them better until we can get to a point where we find ways to power ourselves that don't involve any mining, that don't involve the use of, you know, these toxic chemicals or whatever. Great. But until we can get there, it's better for us to use electric cars than it is to, for us to use fossil fuel cars, Right. I mean, isn't the, the saying is, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I feel like this movie really is focused on the perfect and says, to hell with the good. It's not good enough. And by the way, I got to say this right now because the Duchess is outside the window looking in on the hutch. We just had a bunch of chicks get born in this coop. And it's they're so adorable. And I'm so happy for Diane because she's so happy about these baby chickens. And they're very cute. And... um yeah hooray for chickies and they're adorable and this other chicken's trying to get out of the coop and she's trying to keep it in but we need a we need a glass flap for the coop there so we can see the little baby chickies because they're so adorable so anyway that's a little stuff about this movie uh there's an important is another point i want to make there's an important distinction between skepticism which is a healthy part of a balanced mental diet you know skepticism is uh distinction between skepticism and cynicism which is a deadly virus skepticism is where you ask questions and you say you know you don't just accept everything you're told and you you challenge authority no matter what the authority is and you you refuse to settle for the conventional answers and you go looking for more you know 
the, the deeper, uh, Saul Williams said, under the fossils or older fossils. And I think that under every truth, there's a deeper truth. And, I, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who I recently learned is a was a um, sort of a white supremacist. He wrote a thing called English Traits, which was arguing for the supremacy of whiteness. Anyway, uh, he also wrote an essay called Circles, which is awesome. And he said, under every deep, a lower deep opens. There is no end in nature. And I think that's true about truth. So, you know, we should always go looking for it. And skepticism says, you know, you, you're skeptical of what you're told. You don't automatically accept it. But cynicism says you never accept anything you're told. Everything is nonsense. Everything is hogwash everybody's lying. You can't trust anybody or anything. So just forget it. There's no point trying to understand anything. You know, the world is just too messed up. That's a cynical point of view. And there's a very important difference. And a movie like this breeds cynicism. Even if that's not what they were trying to do, they're breeding cynicism. Um, and the last thing I want to see among my already jaded and confused students, not to mention myself, I tend to be pretty jaded and confused a lot of the time, is more cynicism, especially toward the movement for climate justice and global action. Uh, yeah. So my main theses here in this thread are, A, we need to consume less. Green tech is not enough. And the movie hints at this, but doesn't spend much time at all exploring it. Again, look, there's a, um, oh, what was it? Uh, Morgan Spurlock, who uh, apparently his wife left him because he was a scumbag who cheated a lot and he may have done some other sketchy things when it comes to women. Uh, he did a really good show for, uh, I think it was the one he did for CNN called Inside Man where he like, you know, his whole thing, he did the guy who did Supersize Me and his whole thing is like, I'm gonna, you know, he ate McDonald's for a month and looked at how it affected his body and then he had a show called 30 Days where he took different people. He and his girlfriend at the time um, tried to live for a month on minimum wage and they documented how hard it was and, you know, the rest of the show was like that. So anyway, his show for CNN was called Inside Man which is the same basic concept but, you know, looking at other things and one of the things he looked at was consumption and he looked at where does your garbage go? Where What, what, what are landfills really doing? And it was a really good look at that and he looked at um, how, wh why, why are we consuming all this stuff? And crucially, he found somebody who doesn't consume a lot. There's this family, I think they're in France or something. It's is the French episode. Viva la France! Viva la Revolution! That's the title of this episode. Viva Charles de Gaulle! Thank you, Duchess. So he, but he found a family that they, they only threw away, like they showed, there's like a jar containing what they throw away in a year. And it was unbelievable. And and the point that the point of the, that little part of the episode was that they buy everything in bulk. They don't buy anything they don't need. They reuse everything, and and it just it, it made so much sense. Now it's very hard to do that, right? We live in a society where everything is packaged in plastic, and it's all about single use, and it's all about convenience, and it's all about low cost. So you know they probably paid a lot more to live this way. But the point is that it's not about individual choices. It's about social structures. And so the fact that we need to consume less is true. And we should all work on that. And I'm not very good at it, but I'm doing what I can to consume less. Speaking of which, I ordered a new gaming mouse. Why isn't it here yet? My scroll wheel died. I don't know what to tell you. I have this other mouse that I use for the Mac, but it doesn't have keys on the left side of the mouse. And I need those for gaming. So yeah, okay. I probably could live without that gaming mouse. But anyway. The point is that, um, you know, I make do with a normal human-sized TV. I haven't bought a new Mac because this one is doing 
barely what I need it to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we do need to consume less. And green tech is not enough. The movie hints at that, but not spend. So my point about the Morgan Spurlock thing is he found somebody who was doing this thing that he was talking about, right? You find people who are working on these things and you highlight them. That's one of the things that activist propaganda which is what this podcast is, what this movie is supposed to be, what Josh Fox's Gasland is, what Naomi Klein's film, The Take, which is another great documentary film. Um, these media products are forms of propaganda. Let's not kid ourselves. But what they ought to do is to help us see what that better world might look like, how, how we conceptualize about getting there. So anyway, um, we should not choose, and this is another thing the movie kind of hints at but doesn't really do very well, we should not choose supposedly renewable energy sources that give us good feelings, but don't significantly lessen our impact on the planet. So the, 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 the critiques from Josh Fox and Naomi Klein and others convince me that the film's accusations here are unfair. So there's that. If we really want to deal with population growth, which is another thing the film vaguely gestures toward without depth, we must do it with education, family planning, and the empowerment of women. Right, Because otherwise it's like, well, we should just kill off half the population or whatever, which is a sick way of thinking. And I don't think anybody in the film is trying to argue that, but it's hard to know what they're arguing. So if they don't want us thinking that they're arguing for killing off a half the population, you need to make clear what you do have in mind. And the asking of questions is not good enough. I'm sorry. And I think this might be my final point. Good art must not merely inform. It must also somehow inspire. E.B. White was the guy who wrote uh, Charlotte's Web and Stuart Little. And he gave an interview with the Paris Review. And I love this quote. So this is the quote of the week that I want to end with. All right. So here, I should really play this theme song now. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Stop repenting because the end is near. But don't panic. You can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention. You got to listen to hear. And that's Talib Kweli, by the way. I mentioned him earlier in his website, uh, his podcast, The People's Party. He makes a lot of great music. And that's a song called Listen off of his album Eardrum, in case you're curious. Anyway, E.B. White uh, said this in a Paris Review interview in 1969. Quote, I do feel a responsibility to society because of going into print. A writer has the duty to be good, not lousy. True, not false. Lively, not dull. Accurate, not full of error. He should tend to lift people up, not lower them down. Writers do not merely reflect and interpret life. They inform and shape life. And that's where we're going to end it, people. I've been talking and I'm sick of talking and I got other things to do. Listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Thank you to everybody who's shown me love on the internet recently. I think one of the things that social media does best is that it provides us a little bit of love when we need it and it kind of makes me feel pathetic because when people i don't know how to handle compliments i'm like that guy on the simpsons the art teacher Arch, please i don't take praise very well anyway uh, that's how i feel as soon as somebody starts complimenting me especially after i've put something out that's like self-pitying which was what my tweet was about i can't get published why do i even write stories I mean, look, I have a right to express my frustration. There's nothing, I just never want to be seen as fishing for pity. And so when people show me love after that moment, I always feel like uh, people are going to think I'm fishing for pity and uh, whatever. The point is that um, 
I really needed a little boost in that moment, and the Duchess gave me a boost, and that's so awesome, and I'm so lucky to have that. And the people on Twitter also gave me a boost. So I'm very grateful for having that kind of online support system as well. So thank you to Nick. Thank you to um, A. Siegel, uh, and thank you to G.H. Rocker, as I mentioned, and thank you to um, Adam, uh, I think that's Adamski. Is that, yeah, Adamski. Thank you, Adamski. And thank you. A Siegel liked everything. Thank you. Tainted Shirt, thank you so much for being so nice. Um, yeah, uh, John Broad said uh, something about um, insomnia, which I appreciate. And um, yeah, uh, Tainted Shirt helped to promote my book, which I really appreciate. JP Snake was very kind. Jason Gallagher is always very supportive. Uh, and I love him for that. And um, Jay, what the fuck was he tweeting about? Uh, I love your quizzes, man. Thank you so much for that. Ms. Peters liked a tweet that I sent. Uh, Robin Brown, thank you for that. Uh, he liked a thing that I sent out earlier. Um, yeah, G.H. Rocker, John Mouse. I'm so lucky to, and Christina James, thank you for that. I'm so lucky to have all these people showing me love when I need it and helping me to get through the hard times. And I'm also fortunate that past me has worked on the process of letting go of sadness because that helps me in moments like this. So that 12 hours ago when I was feeling so down, I said to myself, you know what? I'm feeling down. I'm not going to cling to that sense of frustration and sadness. I, I can experience it let it be what it is in my soul at the moment and then try to let go of it. And the more you work on that, the easier it gets so that you can bounce back and you can appreciate and accept the love and support from the people around you and you can make it through hard times and, you know, things change. This too shall pass. And yeah, I, I hope for all of you to get through your hard times uh, the way that I have and I hope that you get the same love and support from the people around you. And I love and support you, whoever you are. I thank you for listening to my inane babbling. And I hope you have a good week. And I'm going to stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. Oh, and I've got to thank uh, Garrett and Soph for helping to make the Juncture Alpha even better. And the Duchess gave me some feedback. And uh, yeah, so thank you to everybody who helped me to make that story better. Because uh, I really think it's awesome. And I can't wait for y'all to read it if, if you want to read it. Uh, yeah, I guess that's it. Hey, Duchess, I thought you were going to beatbox. No beatboxing today? All right. <laughs>